All right, we are back. You know, talking about like National Geographic Channel and things like that, this is where you can actually find occasionally some wonderful quality bits of television. It doesn't happen enough, but it does happen. If you missed that program on Alien Earths, I'm sure National Geographic will air it again, or it's probably available somewhere out there. But no, I was watching a Nova here uh, earlier this week, too, about monster black holes in the center of the Milky Way. Pretty cool stuff. Well, we could spend a whole show or two talking about things like, uh, you know, pulsars, supernova explosions, you know, bubbles in the local area of the galaxy that apparently were blown clean by blasts uh, in the distant past. Things that might have affected the Earth in the not-so-distant past. In fact, we're still trying to track down a story out, out of UC Berkeley from a few years back about how they think a distant supernova that exploded 41,000 years ago may have caused some extinctions here on Earth. Anyway, fun stuff. We'll, we'll return to that in other programs. But I was struck while watching Channel 6 uh, with that show about uh, black holes that during the interlude they had uh, the various photographs and the montage which, you know, remind you of why you're watching, you know, PBS, but I was struck by the fact that one of the voices was that of Ted Kennedy, who of course passed away this week, and I'm looking right now at uh, the website, deaderalive.com, because I can't think of any month since we've been doing this show that's had quite the mortality rate of, of prominent individuals as August of 09. In reverse order, we had uh, Dominic Dunn yesterday, Ted Kennedy earlier this week, Don Hewitt, Robert Novak, Kim, De Kim Dae-jung of South Korea, Les Paul, inventor of the uh, electric guitar, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, movie director John Hughes, Bud Schulberg, and Corazon Aquino. I don't know. We, we like to do obituaries in this program, but we're frankly overwhelmed. We do plan to return to some or, or most of those individuals, but I just want to say that uh, with the passing of Ted Kennedy, I was struck with a slightly morbid thought which was that decades ago, with the death of, of JFK and RFK at the hands of assassins, I hoped that one day, Teddy would die in bed. And it would turned out that uh, Ted was the only one of the four Kennedy brothers, uh, sons of Joe Kennedy, who did not die violently in the service of the U.S. government, you might say. He was a 30-year-old playboy when he was elected to the Senate back in 1962, with no distinguishing <laughs> features in his career. But it appears in retrospect that uh, Ted Kennedy was probably one of the most effective senators in the history of the U.S. Senate. But uh, what a bad month for the Kennedy family, with Eunice Kennedy Shriver and, and Teddy both going uh, a few weeks apart. We'll talk about some of that in future installments of the program. Not so long ago, I stumbled on a quote from an American politician who's kind of been lost in the haze of history. That would be Wendell Wilkie. Wilkie had the distinction of being that the man the Republicans ran in 1940 to oppose Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was running for an unprecedented third term as U.S. president. Wilkie made a run for it, but came up way short. But uh, he left us with one great slogan, which was, A good catchword can obscure analysis for 50 years. 
And man, ain't that the truth. And, and I think of this, I thought of this in conjunction with these death panels they're talking about in these town meetings. People such as Sarah Palin and the various knuckleheads at Fox News have been talking about death panels. In spite of their Spanish Inquisition-like name, they're referring to a voluntary conversation uh, program that would be set up to it so the doctors and elderly patients could talk about end-of-life options. Which you have to admit, doesn't have quite the, the ring to it of death panels. Anyway, I don't know if, this, if uh, intelligent discussion can be obscured for 50 years, but I think it can probably be obscured for 50 days, and that's probably enough to, uh, you know, uh, help the Republicans in an effort to kill any chances for Obama's uh, health program to succeed. You know, we need to coin a few phrases like that ourselves. But I think we'll have a contest, dear listener. If you can come up with the best catchphrase that will screw up analysis for indefinitely, send that to us at info at radioparallax.com. Uh, give us the context of what it is you're referring to. Give us the catchphrase that will obscure analysis, and we'll pick a winner on, uh, let's see, the show after next. The winner will get a KDVS t-shirt. And uh, speaking of health reform, how about this statistic? There are currently 3,300 registered lobbyists working the halls of Congress on health care reform legislation, according to the Center for Responsive Politics. That works out, of course, to six lobbyists for every member of Congress. And you can bet these lobbyists are not working for reform, by and large. Boy, and as I say that, here's a stat that... I was thinking to save this for next week's show, but I guess this is the time to interject it. 34% of Americans say that watching news accounts of the protests at town hall health care meetings has made them more sympathetic to the protesters versus 21% who say it has made them less sympathetic. That's according to Gallup. Of course, it isn't just the town hall meetings. People are showing up at, at rallies now in certain states where you're allowed to carry firearms with loaded assault rifles. We've, we've talked about it before, but I still find it hard to believe. We do want to extend an absolute bravo to the Sacramento Bee, specifically Margaret Talov of McClatchy Newspapers. Yay! We highly recommend her article, Who's Behind the Attacks on a Healthcare Overhaul? This came out on Friday, uh, August 14th, and uh, didn't get the play I think it deserved. So let me excerpt from it to make up for that. Dateline Washington, much of the money and strategy behind the so-called grassroots groups organizing opposition to the Democrats' health care plans comes from conservative political consultants, professional organizers, and millionaires, some of whom hold financial stakes in the outcome. What a surprise! Most of them say they oppose big government in principle. Despite Obama's assurances to the contrary, many of them insist the Democrats' legislation is but the first step toward creation of a single-payer system. Wouldn't that be horrible? Where the federal government hires the doctors, approves treatment, sets the rules, and imperils profit. Tell you, as a physician, people ask me about my opinion on this, this whole issue. Uh, they've been asking me this for 20 years, and for 20 years, I gotta admit, I don't have an answer. But uh, this doc is at the point where, you know, something has to change. And if at this point we're the only nation among advanced industrial nations that does, that does not have universal health care coverage, well, I don't think we're going to bring about a Stalinist dictatorship if we go the way of Denmark, Sweden, and France, okay? Anyway, back to the article. These opposition groups appear to have spent at least $10 million so far on ads attacking the Democrats' plan. 
Still, supporters of a health care overhaul have outspent opponents by a more than two-to-one margin. Supporters of change include drug makers angling for their own protections, unions, the AMA, and the AARP, whereas the opposition groups have some catchy names. They sound very populist. Patients First, Patients United, Americans for Prosperity, Conservative for Patients' Rights, Freedom Works, 60 Plus, Club for Growth. Well, who are these folks? Well, Freedom Works, which has been advocating against the overhaul, is chaired by Dick Armey, former Republican Majority Leader of the House from Texas, and the guy that was leading the charge to make sure that, oddly enough, Ralph Nader got on all the all the state's uh, ballots back in 2004. Turns out the groups Patients First and Patients United are creations of a larger group called Americans for Prosperity, AFP. AFP's website describes a grassroots organization with more than 700,000 members that advocates for public policies that champion the principles of entrepreneurship and fiscal and regulatory restraint. It was started by billionaire David Koch, oh, of the Koch Industries oil family, big donor to conservative causes. According to the article, Tim Phillips, AFP's president, is a former Republican congressional staffer who helped former Christian Coalition Executive Director Ralph Reed start up the consulting firm Century Strategies in the 1990s. Clients paid the firm to build Christian grassroots support for various business causes. That included work for the since-convicted lobbyist Jack Abramoff. This group, along with Freedom Works, was involved in promoting the anti-tax tea parties earlier this year. Oh, and AFP's also done some good work organizing a campaign, quote, exposing the ballooning costs of global warming hysteria, unquote. Here's an amazing quote from uh, Tim Phillips of AFP, as quoted by Margaret Tolev. Americans are looking at these rallies that are happening and the town hall turnouts, and they say, no one group out of thin air could do that. The American people can see through the attacks on the other side where they try to vilify these groups as being corporate groups or front groups. They're believing it is, in fact, a broad groundswell. So if you, re- if you listen to his words, he seems very pleased about the fact that, hey, hey, people think this is legit. Hey, no one group could, could pull that out of thin air. Well, no, it's not one group. It's several groups. We've just named them, including Club for Growth. Remember those guys back in 04? Bought a lot of ad time comparing John Kerry to some, you know, a granola-eating, Volvo-driving, Chardonnay-sipping, you know, freak from out in the West Coast. I don't know if it said West Coast, but, you know, which is typical, you know, a bunch of hippie jerks. That's your John Kerry. Anyway, nice piece of reporting. I recommend you check it out. Also, some uh, letters in the B on the same subject. Don Anderson of Folsom wrote in uh, thanking uh, the B for, uh, well, actually for a previous letter where someone named the names of the culprits behind the town hall attacks. Apparently the prior letter had been written by Marsha Lorfing, and, and, and Don noted that she comments that the people at the town hall meetings are the ones that get their news from Fox or Rush Limbaugh, which prompted Don to add, oldsters will remember the maxim, Life Magazine is for people who won't read, and Time Magazine is for people who won't think. Added Don, well now we have Fox for the former and Rush for the latter. And the B had an editorial about this whole issue, which of course said, some sensible things like Americans ought not to allow themselves to be intimidated by guns at public forums. Noting that in a press release titled Wearing Their Rights on Their Hips, gun advocates attend town hall meetings openly armed. Adding that the Gun Owners of America actually encourages guns at rallies as 
an opportunity for Americans to push back a little harder against the tide of big government. Added the B politely, whatever the intentions might be of someone bringing a gun to a rally or a town hall, a reasonable person would take the presence of guns at a political event as a means of intimidation, a way to trump dialogue with firepower. Well, yeah. All right, uh, speaking of, uh, of uh, free speech, and I, I guess we are, I have to come in another article about a local affair, the fact that uh, in Sacramento, they decided last year that people really should take all of their green waste and stick it in a bin. And they're now trying to argue with a straight face that, oh, well, yes, cost-cutting is a concern, but, you know, what we really want to do is stop West Nile virus. The reasoning, if you can call it that, is that, you know, if the gutters are being flooded and there's vegetable matter in the street and it washes with the water down into the drain, then mosquito larvae down there can grow more effectively and you can have more mosquitoes. And yes, folks, these are actual adults coming up with this line of reasoning, not three-year-olds. And I'm sad to note that the Sacramento News and Review, an otherwise outstanding uh, publication, was taken in by this. And I think, I think it was Ted Cox that wrote that article, and, you know, Ted's at it again. Another piece titled, Letting Go of the Claw. Sub-headlining. Sub-headline. Sacramentans love to throw their yard waste in the streets, but soon it will cost you. Yes, folks, if you're a tourist from elsewhere, you have to realize that if you come to Sacramento... It's just routine to see drunken people running out and throwing yard waste into the streets. And of course, the guy that's heading this, quote, voluntary, unquote, program is Ed Hicks, working for the city, who actually said this. And in Sacramento, it's a God-given right to throw stuff in the street. People will do that because that's what they've done their whole life. Yeah, actually, this is all about saving a few bucks by not sending the guy out with the claw to pick up your vegetable matter. But, you know, if you've got a lot of trees, well, actually, let me quote from Karen Patterson, who had some intelligent thing to say about this uh, in the July 23rd edition of the News and Review. In response to letting go of the claw, Karen said, I was amused by your article about the city wanting to eliminate the garden waste service because it failed to acknowledge the problem until the penultimate sentence. Mature trees generate way too many leaves to fit in the containers. Then the last sentence of the article deals with that problem simply by observing that other cities manage to survive without a garden waste service like ours. Sure they do. They have fewer trees. That's a reason, after all, why Sacramento is known as the city of trees. Do we really want to get rid of them? She goes on, I'm a homeowner with two mature trees. I've tried over the years to put as many of the leaves as possible into the trash. I know how few of them the cans can hold, even after I compress them as much as possible with cinder blocks. So elimination of the garden waste services will be the equivalent of a tax on trees. The result won't be obvious immediately, but over time it will discourage residents from planting trees and encouraging their removal. Then one day people will wonder, what happened to all of Sacramento's trees? This is happening at a time when people are supposed to be planting more trees to reduce greenhouse gases and cooling costs. Elimination of a garden waste service will also result in more street flooding from leaves clogging the storm drains. Well, Karen, as far as I know, they're not talking about eliminating it. They just want to cut it way back. And uh, like you, with four large trees, I found those, those little bins are just not adequate. So in the meantime, Edison Hicks, I'm going to enjoy my God-given right to throw stuff in the street. Why, hell, I've been doing it my whole life. I'm not going to stop. 
And if anyone out there is dumb enough to believe the argument this is going to stop West Nile virus and mosquitoes, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. All right, we're out of time, so I'm looking around for something to close with. How about this science item? I, I love this story. Let me quote from it from Science Now. Clouds are as common as day, but scientists don't fully understand how they form. One theory is that water molecules attach to floating particles of pollen or dust, then gather by the trillions to form clouds. But a prominent Dutch physicist suggests that clouds may actually have their origin in outer space. Henrik Svensmark argues that water molecules in Earth's atmosphere are stripped of their electrons by cosmic rays, fast-moving atomic particles from deep space, and turned into electrically charged ions. Like little magnets, these ions then attract other water molecules and eventually form clouds. Three years ago, Svensmark demonstrated the effect in the lab. And now he's bolstered the case by analyzing 22 years of weather satellite data. Svensmark found that Earth's clouds cover drops significantly during certain solar storms. And during solar storms, of course, the sun blasts a wave of hot particles at the Earth and temporarily shields our planet from those cloud-forming cosmic rays, commented Norwegian geoscientist Jan Ego Christiansen. The finding is astonishing. And if other observations back these guys up, Svensmark new, res new results could greatly strengthen the case for a cosmic ray cloud connection. You gotta admit, that's pretty cool. We're out of time, I'm sad to report, even though we have so much material laying before us that we could talk about. But anyway, our thanks to Seth Showstack and hope he'll be back one day. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. We also want to thank our good pal, Mr. Will Durst. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. Tune in next week for more fun. We'll see you then.